You're listening to Radio Influence. You're listening to Crush Performance with the Crusher, Jeff Crushell. Get in on the talent grid and text Crush at 10-12-60 with your questions, comments, or smart-ass remarks. And welcome to Crush Performance, everybody. I am Jeff Crushell, and we're your weekly source for performance information. Thanks for joining us this week. Listen, if you want to reach out, want to get in touch, questions, comments, smart remarks, do so. Crushperformance.com is the website. Info at Crushperformance is the email. Follow me on Twitter, at Jeff Crush, and on YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, all the social media platforms. Search out Crush Performance, and we can hook up there. Hey, stay tuned to our website. We've got a new website coming with some great new features, some great new shares, and some links to incredible information as we try to keep you on the cutting edge of the world of human performance so you can not only map out your path, your roadmap, your blueprint to your personal performance, but so we can investigate it, understand what it truly does take to achieve human maximum performance. And this year, I'm really excited. 2021 is going to be a fantastic year, I think, for everybody. A uh, great, great show with Jim Fannin last week. And today is going to be our first episode looking at one of our main themes for this year, which is talent, talent development and talent ID. Today, we talk with crush favorite Dr. Joe Baker, sports science researcher from York University, and we're going to set the table. And it is a massive table for our understanding and our look into what talent is all about. We have a long, long way to go. We're at the infancy of our understanding of what talent is, how we can develop talent, and how we can ID talent currently to help move it forward. So I'm really looking forward to today's conversation as we kick off one of this year's main themes. The other theme is the crush brain game. This is another big one. The brain is such a fascinating area of study right now, and there has been research and technology in the recent years that's allowed us to better understand how the brain, the mind, and the nervous system works, but also it's allowing us to map, train, and monitor our performance in real time. This has never happened before in the history of mankind, and that's why we're confident in saying we believe that the brain our understanding of the brain and our ability to train the brain holds the greatest potential for pushing human performance forward. Now, understanding how that all works under the umbrella of human development, that ties in closely with our, with our look into talent. So talent, talent development, talent ID, a massive area that we're looking at for this year. And the brain game, the brain game, you know, it's kind of like a computer. You know, you have your hardware. That's the brain, the nervous system, the parts of the brain. We've got that fairly well mapped out. We have a pretty good understanding of how it all works and how it comes together. Uh, we're still learning in that area, don't get me wrong, but we've got it pretty well mapped out. But what we don't really understand is how it all works together and 
how it develops over time. I mean, what is it? I mean, honest to goodness, it's, it's our personalities. It's our approach that we take to things. It's our attitude. Uh, the brain game is our perception of the world around us, our perception inside of sport in the moment, our awareness, our decision-making, our problem-solving. And how does it all come together? And how trainable is it? And inside of all that, you have all those important concepts. And another like mindset, your attitude. If you have an open mindset, you know, in the research, we would call it a growth, open or closed mindset, growth mindset. If you have an open mindset, chances are you're going to be very, very susceptible to change, good and bad. The good news is, based on what we know and where we're going in terms of the brain game, just like training the physical attributes of our athlete. You know, you've heard us say it before. If you're new to the show, we're kind of a biological ceiling. There's not much more room for improvement in the world of physical development. We've got that down. If we want to make you faster, if we want to make you more powerful, stronger, if you want to jump higher, if you want to swing the bat faster, if you want to see the ball better, if you want to move quicker, first step quickness, all of those things. We have a very, very good understanding of the physical side of sport, right? A biological ceiling, honestly. Now, if you don't have that, you don't have a chance. Let's get, that, let's get that straight right off the start. If you don't have the physical side down, you do not have a chance. But because of our understanding, our great understanding of that side of it, it's not really an edgy part of the playing field. I think that's where the brain game comes in. Our brain game and understanding the process of development. Because I honestly do believe, ladies and gentlemen, we're not seeing the best performers at the highest level of sport. We're seeing some of the great performers, and you know, those might be the standouts, but we have missed and destroyed so much talent along the way because our system, our developmental systems are so flawed and broken, and our knowledge base of talent development is truly in its infancy. So I'm really excited about today's show as we kick off our look into talent, talent development, talent ID. We're going to spend the entire year looking at this big topic along with the crush brain game. We could dedicate a year to each of these, but they work so beautifully hand in hand and where we're at now in terms of the technology that's allowing us to train the brain, as we mentioned, oh boy, oh boy, that really leads us down the road, maybe a new road in talent development. Because if we can start some of these ideas that we now have, start some of this training, this brain training, cognitive training, at earlier ages, maybe at critical times of development, how does that change the future outcome of our athletes? Or maybe even more important, if we take an elite athlete who's already established, an elite collegiate athlete or high school athlete, an Olympic athlete or a professional athlete who's never been exposed to this, what does that mean for them? What will it mean for accomplished athletes who are already performing at the highest level? We don't know yet. Because we really haven't been in this game long enough to see the impact of those things on the top performers. I can't be more excited. But the systems are broken. And I know organizations are still looking down the wrong paths when it comes to talent development and talent identification. Scouting departments are so off key. But there's also some really good things going on in sport as people look for answers. And we're going to work our butts off this year to get some of those answers to help everybody out there out. And we're going to be talking to some of the experts, top experts from around the world. 
and I can't be more excited, but listen, um, the regular crush stuff will continue. Honest to goodness, we'll be looking at uh, the storylines and the news coming out in the world of sport. We'll be talking about the Olympics. We'll be talking about new technologies. The crush war on sugar, ladies and gentlemen, is unstoppable. The crush war on sugar will continue. And believe it or not, the ties to the crush war on sugar in the brain game are stronger than we ever imagined. And if you're familiar with the crush war on sugar, you can go to the website and get all of the war on sugar episodes. You know, based on the people that we've talked about, the research that we've been doing personally and the research that's now out there, high sugar diets, high sugar beverages are absolutely destructive for human health and they are brutal for human performance if they're not lined up. We're going to get to all that because it all comes together. And we're also going to look at the crush things to watch. You know how much we love it at the start of every professional season or going into Olympics or in a major sporting event. We'll look at the hot, hot storylines. We'll look at the teams to watch, the players to watch. More so to see, one, how they got there. What makes these great performers great? And are they as great as they could be? But also to better understand how they got there so we might get a better understanding of the paths we all need to take for sure. But also from an organizational standpoint, once an individual is in an organization, it doesn't mean they're going to be great. That environment has to be great. It was one of Coach Belichick's quotes. Good players can't overcome bad coaching, period. It's so true. And one of my favorite quotes from the Harvard Business Review, culture trumps strategy every single time. That whole conversation of nature versus nurture. Oh my goodness, I love this stuff. And you know how much we love that stuff. Top performance for all, ladies and gentlemen. That's all I can say. And, you know, speaking of Coach Belichick and all of the crush stuff, how about how about sport right now? We cannot not talk about it. The NBA is off to a roaring start. And, of course, you have probably heard on the show our teams and players and storylines to watch. The Lakers are a team to watch. The Raptors are a team to watch. And, boy, oh, boy, they're up against it, aren't they? You know, we're watching players like Zion and LeBron, of course. We're watching the Warriors. There's so many storylines in the NBA, uh, but we're not looking for who wins and loses. We're looking for why things happen. The NHL is about to get underway. Training camps are going on. They're making cuts right now. And this is such a bright light for society right now. You know, in this COVID madness, so many amateur athletes aren't playing right now. And all I can say to every amateur athlete from grassroots right up, who, who's had their sports shut down right now, take advantage of this time. Go back to our shows uh, from last year, uh, our Kids of COVID series. It's a two-part series. Very, very powerful conversation about COVID and the impact COVID is having on our young athletes and, and our young students, our young people. Now, the focus there was our high school seniors and our athletes who are missing sport. But boy, oh boy, inside of this adversity is a massive opportunity, ladies and gentlemen. And if you need help with that, write to us. Honestly, we appreciate these, these notes so much. And you know, just being able to maybe point somebody in the right direction or give them some advice, I'm not saying we know it all. But what, what I will say is, if we don't have the answer to your question, we're going we're gonna to find it with you. All right? Just like we would any one of our athletes or our organizations. We don't ask why. You know, thank Simon Sinek for the whole, hey, why thing? What's your why? You know, and that's important. You need to do that at some point in time. But in our world, 
that question is long gone, man. That's like a forgotten tweet. In our world, the main question is, why not? Why not? And if we can answer that question, we can start, we can start plotting out that roadmap to help you achieving your goals. And again, we don't know how far you can go. We don't know how good you can actually become until you go through the process. The process that's going to be right for you based on your environment, based on the resources, based on the facilities, based on the help that you have. But wherever you are and whatever you're trying to do, there's a way to optimize. Optimize what you have. And a lot of it starts with you as an individual. And that's what I love about this stuff. And so when we look at the NFL, NHL's underway, NBA's underway, Major League Baseball, fingers crossed. But the NFL, holy smokes, what a ride this year. Okay, and I'm a big Raiders fan. The Raiders were one of our teams to watch this year. One, because there's been a lot of changes administratively, ownership change. We've been watching that with great interest. But the new stadium going to Vegas, what was that going to mean for this team that has been struggling for so long? Unfortunately, in this COVID landscape, they didn't really truly get to tap into that beautiful new facility in Las Vegas. But I can't wait until they do. I can't wait until it's open to fans. I can't wait till that place is packed for every game, for every event. And then we're going to see the impact of the crowd on performance. All right. But they didn't, you know, the big contract with Gruden, you know, all the things that they've gone through, they struggled this year, big time. So we're going to watch with great interest to see if they can turn it around. That's why we watch, you know, in, in, in the NFL, we watch the Patriots. Brady's gone. Is Belichick the mastermind we really think he is? Well, it's going to be, it's going to be a, a slow change, you know, turning an organization around after these massive changes they've gone through. It's like turning a tanker ship in the ocean. You can't turn this on a dime. So we saw what happened with the Patriots this year. We're going to watch how the staff, Belichick and everybody there reacts this off season. And we're really interested more so than this year in what happens next year. Now, of course, we're watching the Bucks because they got Brady and Brady and the influence of Brady. Well, it's all true. It's all true. And I'm sure if we went into that locker room and talked to those players and the staff, we would almost instantly get an indication of how powerful Tom Brady's approach to the game is. And, and that's the power of one player. Now, get, don't get me wrong. He can't do it alone. If that offensive line doesn't do their job, he doesn't have a chance. Any quarterback under pressure struggles, right? So that's been an incredible team effort. But to watch the Bucks now rise up, I'm so excited for everybody there in Tampa. You know, uh, I've been to a couple games there. I know the people there a little bit. And, and that's exciting to see. So we watch the Patriots and the Bucks, And those two are kind of, you know, uh, working together in, in the crush scheme of things because of the changes. We've been watching the Rams since McVay took over. Youngest coach with a cool attitude. Um, would it translate into performance? It is translating into performance. I would love to talk to McVay. You know what? I'm going to try to get him on the show. I'm going to reach out and just see if we can get him. You know, these guys are inundated. Well, I, I've been there. I know how busy they are. But let's reach out. Let's see if we can have a conversation with him. Because there's something special going on there. That's why we're watching them. And I've got to just tell you this to wrap this up. Um, our number one team to watch in all of sports, certainly in the NFL for the last few years, if not even longer, has been the Cleveland Browns. Uh, out of pity and sorrow, maybe to begin with. But we've been watching closely since 2012 to see if this team 
could turn it around. New ownership, exciting new ownership coming in. You know, in 18 years, they haven't been to the playoffs. They finally break through this year, and we've been watching almost every step of the way. There's a lot to learn here, ladies and gentlemen. They go up, they fall down five steps. They come up a little, and boom, they're the worst team in the league. They make some changes. Now it's finally coming together. What an incredible process this has been. Since 1999, the return to Cleveland, they've only had three winning seasons in 2002, 2007, and this year, 2020-2021. Only twice to the playoffs, 2002 and this year, and here they are. Fantastic stuff, and they're going to be a crushed team to watch for years to come. Not necessarily because of the coach or the personnel, but because of the organization. Hey, Cleveland fans, we are so happy for you. Go. I hope they go deep. Okay, awesome. I re- so much fun to watch. And then the Bills. Not a crush team to watch, per se. But listen, they haven't had a playoff win since 1995. Congratulations to everybody who cheers for that team. Because, boy, oh boy, they have put something special together this year. Right? And that's what we look at. That's the crush stuff right there that we love so much all right okay well let's get into it again the two main themes for crush 2021 talent and the brain game today we kick off episode number one in our look into talent with crush all-time favorite dr joe baker sports science researcher from york university coming up right after this everybody let's get ready to roll we'll be right back what it takes to be a top performer get the crush blog podcast and newsletter at crushperformance.com now back to the show all right welcome back to crush performance everybody hey if you want to reach out to us do so crushperformance.com is the website info at crushperformance is our email questions comments smart remarks love them all and we answer every single message we get if you need help with something let us know if we don't have the answers in-house here I can pretty much guarantee when it comes to human performance and helping you achieve your goals, we know somebody who can get us the answers. And uh, we've helped a lot of our listeners along the way. We love every message we get. So please do not hesitate to write in because as much as we want to help you, if you have that question, imagine how many other people there might be facing the same issues or with the very same question. And not only that, your question may get us thinking about something that we haven't thought about before, which is kind of what we like to do for you. We like to investigate, dig down deep, talk to experts from all over the world to maybe get you guys thinking about things that you haven't thought about. So again, it's teamwork. And we've been a great team up until now. Let's continue that for certain. Again, crushperformance.com is the website. Subscribe, get the newsletter, get the podcast, and get all the links to the world of performance. But most importantly, info at Crush Performance is the email. Send us uh, a note and we'll get back to you. All right. Two of our major platforms for 2021. As we've been saying time and time again here as we kick the season off, the brain game and talent. Talent development and talent ID. Both of these topics are massive. We could dedicate an entire year to each of these. But based on where we're at, in our understanding of talent, talent development, human performance, and the brain game, we thought that we had to attack both of these this year. Because listen, if you're going to catch up, if you're going to stay on the cutting edge, if you're truly going to reach your potential, we feel these are two areas that as individuals we need to be aware of and attack from the right angles, but also organizationally. 
I think there's a lot of room for improvement out there in sport and in business, in academics, anywhere. There's institutions where people are working together to either improve performance or get something done. An understanding of talent, talent development, talent ID is absolutely critical, especially at this point, because that's where we're at now. So without further ado, let's get to it. I want to introduce the very first Crush Performance Talent Conversation for 2021. And nobody better to have it with than Crush Favorite, Dr. Joe Baker, sports science researcher from York University. Dr. Baker, Happy New Year. Thanks for joining us as we kick off our 2021 campaign and our look into talent, talent development, and talent ID. Yeah, Happy New Year to you too, Jeff. I'm excited to to chat. Yeah, well, thank you for doing this again. Uh, For our audience, this is round two. We had some technical uh, difficulties in the saving and transfer of our previous conversation, which was absolutely fantastic. Um, one of our one of our main themes for 2021 is going to be talent and talent development. We're trying to dig down a little deeper, Dr. Baker, and get a better, better understanding of what talent is all about, the process of development, and then how it works, not just for the individual, but in society, and I guess even as an organization as well. So we're actually really excited about this upcoming year, and, and I kind of wanted to kick it off with, with a with a question for you, you know, I, I follow you on social media and uh, looking at some of the research, recent research that you guys have recently published, looking at talent and some of the research that's been out there. An interesting um, I, uh, thought came up or, or perspective came up uh, was the fact that we don't really even have a consensus on what talent is. And I would think that would sort of be ground one for moving forward at anything. Well, you'd think so, right? Like this is uh, this idea of talent's not new. It's been around for at least uh, 150 years in a, in one form or another as a scientific concept. Uh, but what what amazed us over the last couple of years as we've sort of scratched under the surface of this idea is that when you put 12 people in a room and you say, define talent for me, you get 12 different answers, which uh, is a real shock because for something that's so fundamental to the way that we design sports, the, the way that coaches think about their athletes uh, to not even have a consistent definition of what this thing is. Um, you know, from a from a practicality standpoint, it's hard for coaches because the inconsistency is actually important. But it's even it's hard for us as researchers too because we can't uh, design experiments and studies even to draw a line through this concept and say don't worry about it. It's, it's not valuable because we can't even agree on what we're talking about. And so uh, for us, this was, this was really, really surprising. Right. And we're talking about a working definition here. I mean, we can all go to Webster's dictionary or the encyclopedia or Wikipedia. We can probably get a pretty, uh, you know, general definition of what talent is. But when we start getting into the world of human development, we could be talking to uh, um, uh, Juilliard school of music. We could be talking to, um, Harvard Law, we could be talking to the Pacers or any sporting organization, or we could be talking to a grassroots organization in your community uh, who's just getting kids out playing. Uh, when we get into the working definition of talent, that's kind of what we're talking about here. And to get a better understanding of, of what talent's all about, it's going to be important. You know, I've been watching a lot of the video Uh, conferences. And this is, if there was an upside to COVID, that might be one of it, the incredible sharing. And I've seen two or three that you've actually participated in. And one of the things that graphs that actually fascinated me, Dr. Baker, was your graph showing uh, the number of research points uh, looking at talent uh, just in the last 10 years. The interest in this area is just growing exponentially. And I think that's a good thing. 
It is, but uh, but it's uh, you know the interesting thing about that graph is it doesn't start until around 2000, which means that you know we've been wrestling with this concept and and using it and designing sports systems and education programs and and all these types of uh, systems without a real good understanding of of the evidence for or against the system. And so that's not a problem, but just don't call it evidence-based because yeah. the evidence isn't there. And so, wow. um, you know, we need to have that evidence to push and prod these systems to see where their gaps are, or see where their limitations are, because uh, that's the value of the evidence-based approach is that um, it, it takes a system, it flips it upside down, it tests it, it stretches it, it challenges it. And if you haven't done that with a system, then you're you're going on a bunch of assumptions that it's the correct one. And, and that's not to say all these systems that are out there are incorrect. It's just, we don't know that you're correct. And so um, from a research standpoint, there's a lot of work to be done. There certainly is. We're talking with Dr. Joe Baker, sports science researcher from York University. Um, you know, you mentioned that, you know, the, the, the 2000s. So we're in the infancy of the real scientific based research behind talent, talent development, but the conversation, you could trace it back to hundreds and hundreds of years ago when we started talking about nature versus nurture. Maybe that's some of the earliest conversations revolving around talent, whether they knew exactly what they were talking about or not. Would that be fair to say? Well, it goes back even further, right? Like the um, Aristotle and Plato talked about human nature and, and whether it was uh, innate or whether it was through experience, but it really goes back to the 1800s to, um, and, and that kind of huge movement in, uh, in British science to, to get precise in the way that we use language and the way that we measure things. Uh, and it wasn't until the 1850s, 1860s that we started to really explore this idea of uh, human exceptionality and individual differences and trying to explain why some people are better at some things. Uh, and so we've wrestled with this concept in a philosophical way for, for a couple thousand years, probably, you know, as, as cavemen fighting in a, in a, in a cave talking about, you know, why is this person that way and another person different, but the actual science of this goes back about 150 years. Yeah, and that's a very, very that's in the blink of an eye. And when we talk about the historical side of things and and where we're at in terms of its understanding, um, but it's interesting when you go back and look at some of the early research. And you know, <laughs> sitting on my desk, I don't know if this is normal or not, but um, I actually have the Cambridge Handbook of Expertise and Expert Performance. That's sort of my casual reading <laughs> per se. But um, I find this area incredibly fascinating and, and it's kind of like a Sherlock Holmes thing. I'm, again, that's one of the reasons it's, it's sort of our main theme for 2021 here. Uh, I think we've come to a point where we really do need to dig down and help people better understand what talent is all about. If we look at the issues we're seeing in, in sport right now, for example, and let's talk about maybe the developmental side with the dropout rates, the injury rates, and uh, the pressure for athletes now to focus on, on one particular sport or to diversify and sample a lot of different sports. There's so many questions that are opening up. So would you as a sports science researcher call this an exciting time in, in our understanding of talent? I would because, um, you know, f for us, we look at the lack of evidence and the lack of, um, you know, um, uh, challenge and science in this area 
because we look at it from a practical standpoint. So the teams and the sports and the athletes that we work with, uh, if nobody has the solution, then that solution's there waiting to be found. And so like from a, uh, an empowerment standpoint, the, the messaging that we're giving to coaches and to systems is, okay, let's throw out all the baggage that we have that this system is dragged along with it for you know for the last 150 years and let's start from scratch assuming that we know nothing assuming that um talent let's let's agree that it's predictable but let's throw out all the measures that we've had in the past because the predictions have been so poor that those measures probably have very little value uh and so when you can when you have the freedom to start from the ground up without these kinds of assumptions that well, this is something somebody's already figured out somewhere. Uh, if you can throw that assumption out the window, it's a really empowering and freeing um, perspective to start with. And so that's normally the conversation that we have with high-performance coaches and athletes and systems is let's throw it all out. Until we have evidence to draw a line through something, it stays on the board. And, and it just it opens up a whole new area of possibility. Yeah, it certainly does. And again, <laughs> I would think it'd have to... Uh, start with that uh, with our original point here that there needs to be sort of a consensus on what talent is and then you know when I think about that point okay we have a general idea or let's say we define come up with a general definition of what talent is so everybody has a starting point uh, a baseline to work off of that'll be really important but then does that change over time do you think I mean when we look at the developmental process we you know one of the issues that we see in sport right now especially from the talent ID standpoint and you and I've talked about this before we're not we're not really good at that side of this whole thing uh, but but not only that it's getting younger and younger and younger it seems like you know uh, the more we dig into talent um, the further we go potentially in the wrong direction I mean looking at five, six, seven-year-olds and trying to predict the future talent there, um, it seems to be going in the wrong direction from the practical side of things. Yeah, I agree. And I think that's, you know, that's part of the the challenge with coming up with a definition that makes sense for everyone is that um, coaches at all those different levels use the concept in a different way. And so um, I think, you know, if, if we were to say, give me your basic philosophy of what talent is, we probably would get some consistency, right? It would be that thing that I'm looking for that allows me to predict a person's potential for future success. Okay. Well now put that, put that uh, operational definition definition into practice. What are you using to, to, uh, to, to work that process? What are you actually doing in your day-to-day -day coaching or the way that you interact with athletes or parents to put that concept into uh, into practice in your own coaching. That's where we see the inconsistencies. And so um, it's not that we can't agree on what the philosophical um, belief about talent is. It's operationalizing it that's the problem. And it's, well, if, if I'm a coach of seven-year-olds, I look at my athletes from a talent perspective completely different than if I'm working with a group of 27 year olds, the time horizon at which I'm predicting their future success and their potential is fundamentally different. And so that's where we see the breakdown. Um, and it's by sport, it's by age group, it's, uh, it's by, it's by sex and gender, all of those things come into making this concept really, really muddy and convoluted. Oh, that is very, very interesting. There are so many variables involved here. It almost, 
It almost feels unsurmountable. And, and you bring up an interesting point there about working with seven-year-olds as opposed to working with 27-year-olds. It brings up an interesting story. This happened uh, um, sort of middle of last year with me. I was uh, talking to a, a tennis coach, a coach who um, works with very, very talented uh, middle teens, 14, 15, 16-year-olds. These are sort of like junior national type international players who are just getting sort of set for their collegiate careers and they're on the they're on the scope of maybe the national team and, and maybe the professional tours. And he was having an issue with with a um, two parents of a young female player that he was he's working with. Very incredibly talented young lady who has a bright, bright future. And the parents were coming in and had a meeting with the tennis coach and they're saying, well, listen, why, why, why are we doing this with our daughter? Why aren't we training like the pros are training? Because we want our daughter training like Serena Williams. And, and the coach's retort, what was, I thought was really, really smart. He just was really calm and cool. He understood, you know, the passion of the parents and the commitment they made to support their daughter as well. Uh, but he came back and says, well, listen, um, I don't think it's the best idea to train your daughter like Serena Williams right now. She's at a whole other level, but why don't we look back and maybe train her like Serena was training when she was 13, 14 years of age. And and that just resonated with me as like, okay, touche. Well done. Well said, as a matter of fact, what do you think about that? I thought it was pretty smart. Well, it sounds like a pretty switched on coach, right? Like the, the, um, we can't train young kids like they're mini adults. That's not the recipe uh, for success. And in fact, there isn't a single recipe. So, you know, we can't take the the situation, the environment, the training style that worked for Serena and impose that on anyone else because everyone else has their own set of developmental and uh, physical and, and, and uh, maturational constraints that they have to manage in an optimal way across development. The thing that makes it even more complex is if you wanted to create the next tennis player that's going to dominate the game, well, you can't just recreate a Serena Williams. You need to be thinking about what's the next generation's uh, Serena Williams. And so how is tennis going to change in the next 10 years or 20 years so that that player will develop into that new person who's going to dominate the game. We don't want to just predict what worked in the past. We actually have to predict what's going to work in the future. And so that's that's what makes this task so complex for coaches. And so you know that when we when we think about this idea of talent in principle it sounds really simple, but when you start adding these layers to that onion, it becomes this like you said, the, the word insurmountable might actually be the word that we need to be using when we talk about this process, because it might be something that is so complex and has so many balls or balls in the air or plates spinning at one time that we're never going to be able to predict it with any kind of um, real tangible accuracy. And if that's the case, then that forces us to look at athlete development and the way that we nurture athletes and the way that we train them in a completely different way than we do right now, which is thinking that I can look at a seven-year-old at a skating uh, trial for a hockey team and predict how likely they are to make it to the NHL. That is just ridiculous. But we have systems that are based with the the idea that that's a reasonable and a, and a valuable thing to do. Oh my gosh! <laughs> you just threw another another wicked uh, twelve to six curveball into the mix here. You know the the, <laughs> the idea 
of sport evolution as well. Isn't that fascinating? And think about it. You just made me think about this. I, I could think of two really recent things just popped into my mind when you said that. One, uh, the Rome Olympics, where I think it was like 26 or 27. I'm throwing a crazy number. I don't know if that number is accurate, but it's in the ballpark. Uh, when we look at the in the swimming at the at the Rome Olympics, the number of world records that were broken simply due to the swimsuit technology, the uh, mm. the, um, the razor suit came out and it just changed yeah. the whole landscape to the point where um, um, the International Swimming Federation had to put restrictions on the suits incredible influence of technology. And then maybe more recently, Dr. Baker is if you look at the game of baseball and how analytics has of course infiltrated, we all know the money ball story, but now the technology that's giving us data that we've never had before. It's not, it's not only changing how we're, how we're playing and managing the game uh, pitch by pitch. It's also now starting to influence how we're developing our athletes for the game. What a fascinating twist that is. Yeah, it is. And I think we're, you know, and we're seeing something with the distance running at the same time with these new uh, Vaporfly shoes from Nike. And uh, like it's, it's, it's becoming a sport uh, or a sport environment where technology is driving improvements in performance. And I think that's the way that sports evolve and um, and we'll see a point at which the technology is, it, there's going to be a threshold at which it doesn't improve anymore. And in, in fact, it may lead to some diminishing returns because it values things that um, that are becoming less important in a sport world. So for example, if, and we're starting to see this in a lot of sports because of the um, over, over specialization in young athletes is that their ability to make creative and um, effective novel decision-making on the pitch is becoming limited because they, they know how to do one thing. They haven't had that breadth of motor and, and sport experience in a range of different sports. And so it, it affects the way that they think about their game. They think about, they think about rugby as a rugby player. They don't think about it as a rugby player who also played baseball and football and soccer. Uh, and so the, that breadth of experience is, is, uh, is very important for the development of certain capacities. And when sport evolves to a point where everybody looks the same, um, people who have that additional capacity are going to be the ones that dominate. And so that's just, that's the kind of prediction that we need to be making about sport is, um, yeah, it's great into a point, but sport will continue to evolve past that point. And so how do we anticipate what that next stage of evolution is going to look like? Oh boy, that's a big one. Uh, we're talking with Dr. Joe Baker, sports science researcher from York University. What an interesting perspective. Then on top of that, of course, you're right. You throw in all the other aspects, the physical development, the mental development, uh, the the disposition of the athlete. And as they mature, we, if you, if anybody has kids out there, you know what I'm talking about. If you've gotten into the teenage years, if you survived into the teenage years, uh, you've seen your young, your young people change just in their attitudes. And they're influenced by their friends, their schooling, their family, and the things they see on TV. There's so many variables here. Holy cow. I can't even imagine. And then going back to a point you made uh, just a couple of minutes ago about that seven-year-old skater trying to determine that if a, if a really talented seven-year-old skater is going to be a talented adult skater, um, that throws another loop because we are terrible at predicting talent. I mean, I, I say that kind of loosely, but, you know, based on previous uh, um, um, I guess, uh, bodies of work. When we look at predicting one of the things that, that we've looked at recently working with some hockey agents, Dr. Baker is 
um, the relevancy and the impact of the Bantam draft, not just on the uh, future of, of, of players who are recognized at that Bantam level, but also at their development. And it is horrific. I am not a fan of the Bantam draft in any way, shape or form, especially at that age. Um, and I think it does more damage than good. And, and we have a list here of, I think, uh, nine, 10, uh, uh, 12 years of the Bantam draft going back to the nineties and how many players actually play in the NHL. And it's dismal. And so we, then we have the whole idea of our ability to identify future talent as, as you mentioned. Well, it's, you know, the, it's dismal, but um, we'll never know, we'll actually never know how dismal it was because um, there's a, there's something called the sunk cost effect with the things like the draft, where if you choose somebody who's drafted number one in the NHL draft or the Bantam draft, uh, you're more likely to play them because you put so much emphasis on them as a player already. And so you actually treat them differently than somebody who was undrafted or drafted later. And so um, how much of the success stories are even just self-fulfilling prophecies as opposed to players that actually had more talent? Um, it's dismal when you look at it from that perspective, but from a, an experimental or a research perspective, we know it's even worse than what we see because of all these biases that are built into the system. So not only is it dismal on the surface, it's probably even worse than it looks. Yeah. And I think one of the big issues that I have personally, and I'd like to get your opinion on this, is the fact that when we try to identify talent too early, and I know I've seen you mention this in a couple of your presentations. Um, it's a dangerous, dangerous game to play because we don't know who's going to turn out to be really, really accomplished at the end of the game. But we may be cutting some of those paths short just by selecting athletes who might be more mature, like maybe they're maybe they're uh, maturing earlier. Or as you've mentioned before, and we've talked about on the show before, um, the relative age effect, where depending on the sport and where the cutoff is for for dates and classifications, um, maybe that maybe that athlete is almost a year older than than some of his peers he's playing with and potentially looks more talented. But some of these late developers, when they come through, might have a might have a higher ceiling. It's just a, such a conundrum, I feel. Well, and, you know, the relative age effect is is part of it. Like um, the conclusion that we're we're getting to in the research uh, coming out of our lab is that we know we know a lot less than we think about how to develop talented players, but we know a lot more about how to mess them up and how you mess them up is by limiting their opportunities for development, by having things like the draft as the gatekeeper of who gets to move on in the system, by by selecting, uh, thinking you're selecting for talent early when you create representative teams and you split people into playing levels. And um, all of those kinds of things are a way that you uh, marginalize or uh, remove Move talent from your system. And so, you know, coincidentally, that's exactly how we've designed the youth sport system, which means we have a fundamental problem in the way that we're delivering youth sport. Yeah, interesting. And, you know, when it goes to those, um, when it goes to those uh, t 
talent selection. You know, I, a, a story that's relevant for me is uh, my co-host, my former co-host of the show, Craig Moonen, wound up having twins and his life got busy and, you know, he still contributes to the show once in a while, but, but he's moved on and his job's really busy. Uh, but he had uh, uh, a young daughter and a young son, twins, and he was really excited to get Max involved in hockey. So at, I think at five or six or seven years of age, it gets, gets involved in hockey and Max is excited and Craig is excited and they go to their first, you know, team meeting and everything's fine. They get to the first ice and there's, there's selection process for these little seven-year-olds and they're, you know, who's talented and okay. So that's okay. And then they get into the season and it's supposed to be something like, you know, a practice a week and a game a week, just lots of fun. And it wound up being at the end of the day, the parents getting together and, and voting, hey, we need more practices, we need more games, we need more tournaments. And it turned out to be, you know, like 4 a.m. practices and four or five games a week. And at one point, they had six games and five days for these little duffers. And it just got out of control. And I think sometimes we've, we lose sight of what sport is all about. And maybe that's influencing talent development as well in a very negative way when we look at the burnout dropout rates that we're seeing for young athletes. Uh, but maybe we've lost perspective of the fun factor as well. Well, and, and you know, part of the work that we're doing is to design a model where you actually focus on, well, what is the key objective of this stage of development? Um, so, you know, for that seven-year-old uh, or five-year-old hockey player, um, the, the goal of that phase of development is not to win. It's not to play uh, games all the time. It's to make sure you're having fun, develop fundamental skills, uh, develop skating skill. You know, if we, if we were to sit down and coach with coaches and say, okay, we're going to map out this 20 year journey to the NHL or, or to lifelong love of hockey or whatever that outcome is. And we're going to go back and we're going to say, okay, well, where do we start? And what are the things that we absolutely need to have in order for that person to stay with us for this 20 year journey? Playing multiple games every week and having adult-like intensive practices would probably never make the list. And so it forces us to go to those uh, youth sports systems and say, well, well, what's the purpose here? Uh, is this for the kids or is this for the coach so that the coach can, can have a trophy at the end of the, at the end of the season? Like what's the, what's the relevance of what you're doing with this player for their long-term development? And unfortunately, a lot of the coaches that are in the system, and this is not just for hockey, but for a lot of um, uh, popular youth sports, is we have coaches that um, they don't really understand the the developmental process, and they're really unengaged with uh, the long-term journey that that athlete is on. And so um, part of that is education, part of that is uh, engagement with the coaches, part of that is getting them to understand the valuable resource that they're working with. Uh, but it's a different kind of conversation than one that we're having right now, which is how many games did you win on the weekend? That is completely irrelevant to the purpose. I would say we also don't want to do the flip side, which is the Timbits hockey where they don't keep score because kids want to know the score. They want to get information about their competency. So there is this need to feel competent in the things that you do. And so we have to come up with a way that's going to meet both of those ends without falling too far into one or the other.
Oh, such a great perspective. We're talking with crush favorite, Dr. Joe Baker, sports science researcher from York University. Uh, Interesting on both ends of the spectrum, you know, not too much competition, uh, but also um, keeping score. And I'm with you there. I'm a big fan of that as a kid. The kids are going to keep score anyway, whether it's on the board or Mm -hmm. not, because maybe that's a human nature type thing. Absolutely. It is right. And, and, you know, the, the, the talent um, discussion and, and process that we have is um, it's that belief and competency is so important for us as humans that we, um, we very rarely stick with activities where we're not getting that competency feedback. And so one of the things that early coaches, especially uh, coaches working with really young kids is they need to be designing their training approaches so that they're improving feelings of competency because that'll drive motivation that'll drive interest that'll drive intensity and engagement uh and if you undermine that by always pointing out you know these are the things you did wrong or these are the areas you need to work on or this is the game we lost last week uh then what you're doing is you're undermining this thing that is really the currency of skill development over the long term and so again if we had models where we said okay from five to seven we just want people to love what they're doing we just want them to be enjoying it uh, we want them to feel competency uh, and challenge uh, we would probably we probably uh, still keep track of scores and win loss records but we would frame it in a completely different way than we're doing now yeah getting good getting better at something is the ticket to everything I feel you know I've had an opportunity to work at the very highest level of sport. In, in a number of professional sports, but I, I really do have a passion for, for the grassroots development. And, and I've seen it happen in so many different environments. You know, one of the greatest experiences in, in my life so far has been the international work with major league baseball. Um, you know, looking at the game of baseball developing and players coming out of areas where baseball's not even a major sport. It's not even on the, in the top 10 list. Uh, we've had a couple of players come out of Africa, for example, and there is a baseball culture there. Don't get me wrong. Um, but when you look at somebody like Gifton Gope, who comes from a very uh, poverty uh, childhood based childhood to making it to the big leagues, you just get a, a really true perspective of, of, at least for me anyway, I got a really different perspective of of the potential of somebody um, despite, you know, not having all the bells and whistles or not even having maybe even the best or any equipment at all. Uh, there's so many different ways to get this done. So I, I like what you're saying here to pigeonhole one, one way of doing it just doesn't make a lot of sense. Well, and it also limits the opportunity and the possibility of you finding a different solution than the one you're assuming is the right one now, right? Like right. if, if the, if the current baseball development system was so good, you should never be able to go to a country in Africa where baseball is a, essentially a non-entity in, in terms of popularity for sports and find a player who can compete with your gold standard system. The fact that you can find those players means that um, you need to go back to your system and figure out uh, whether it is all you think it is. Wow. Okay, hold on. <laughs> now I've got to step back. <laughs> now I've got to step back. Okay, hold on. <laughs> All right, I'm just trying to rack up how much sleep I'm going to lose here over the next week. <laughs> Think, thinking about all this. But that is an incredibly strong point, isn't it? And, and great, great for those kids coming out of, out of these. They have a passion for the game. They love the game and they've found a way for sure. But what an interesting point you make when we have to, okay, hold on. These guys are coming out of 
non let's just take let's just use baseball we could use cricket we could use volleyball we could be talking about anything right now but these kids are coming out of non-baseball environments and then making it to the highest level of performance wow interesting well, and, you know, well the 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 greatest example that we're aware of is uh, brazilian soccer right like they have essentially um no youth development program the kids play soccer all day with their friends um on the beaches or in the streets they sometimes play with uh balls of rolled up tape because they don't have a soccer ball but here's one of the countries that dominates the international game and they dominate it in a different way than traditional um youth academy based systems do and so well what that forces us to do is to look back at our structured system and say well what's what's wrong here it doesn't mean everything's wrong it means well what is how can we improve that system by taking a lesson from what brazil is doing or how can we improve the north american development system for baseball players by looking at why this player was able to come from africa and compete in that system it doesn't mean you throw the system out it means here's an opportunity for us to improve what we're doing oh that's a great that's a great um um a point you make about Brazilian soccer and the kids just having fun. It seems like we try to get so structured. We're trying to pigeonhole everything. And, you know, it just makes me think of, of a couple instances, you know, just before the holidays here, um, it was a real treat to see the father son um, golf day uh, for the PGA mm -hmm. guys and see Tiger and his son. And I'm not going to lie to you. I look at Tiger's son and I know he's got good people around him, obviously, uh, but I get a little worried about him, you know, getting in the spotlight this early and, you know, living in, in Tiger's shadow. We're going to watch that with great interest because, boy, oh boy, that was I'm jealous of the swing. I'll tell you that much right now. But it, but it also made me think of another young golfer whose career, I believe. And again, you're right. You, without being able to turn the clock backwards, we don't know what would have happened. But I think about Michelle Wee, Dr. Dr. Baker, and how, you know, she was so talented and so strong in the women's game that um, her group of advisors and people around her felt it was really a cool idea to go take on the men's game, uh, which she did. And I, I just believe that she might've missed a lot of opportunities by trying to do something, especially at that age. I think it's one thing for somebody like a Lindsey Vaughn who wants to ski against the men in the world cups. And I think that's great because, you know, she, she's actually had better times than a lot of the men did. Um, but for a young athlete like Michelle, we, I don't know if that's more damaging than good. And I, I just think, uh, sometimes we can't rush the process, right? Yeah. And, and Michelle, we is such a, a great example because at the same time that she was trying to compete with the, the men, it was at, it was the time that golf changed as a sport to be, uh, to emphasize the long drives, right? Like that was the time at which you saw courses getting longer and so if anything you were actually putting uh michelle we and any female golfers at a disadvantage because if males are better than female uh golfers in any one capacity it's the probably the ability to just blast that ball off the tee and so when you have courses that now emphasize uh long drives then you're actually putting the uh, advantage on the male uh, players instead of the female players. There's no reason to think that female golfers would be any less accurate in terms of all of those other components of golf skill, but driving distance, if there is one, that's probably the one where the males would have the advantage. Yeah, right. And don't you think it, it, it makes, you know, in the big picture of things, sometimes uh, I think, I feel we try to rush our young people 
uh, a little too much, you know, playing up to the next age group. Sometimes it's okay just to be really, really good where you're at and and learning even how to deal with being really, really good, uh, whether you're more mature than your teammates or your peers, you know, physically or mentally uh, or whatever it might be. Sometimes it's good just to be good sometimes. Yeah, I think that, well, that's a, that's a massive um, area of discussion, right? Like we have this tendency to always be looking for the next thing, the next level and never really be satisfying, uh, satisfied where we are. And so, you know, why uh, did Michelle, we develop in a environment where they had to look at the male game and compare her uh, dominance of the female game and say, well, you, you know, you're, you're good, but you could, you're not good enough. Uh, You're, you know, you're not as good as the male game well, well that's a that's a, uh, a position that a lot of people have in sport if you're not doing elite sport then um you know you're undervalued or your role is under recognized and i think that's a problem like the the elite world of sport is is a great fit for a really small minority of people uh, but sport has a lot more to offer uh, the average person than just elite sport. Uh, and I, that might be why we're seeing such a disengagement from sport and physical activity going back over the last 20 or 30 years is because we've positioned elite sport as the most valuable thing that you could be doing and everything else is kind of the uh, average, uh, mediocre. But that's not the point. The point is sport has all kinds of other things going for it than just elite performance. And so if we valued those things, if we positioned people's engagement, um, then we would look at sport in a completely different way. And in fact, we actually need to be emphasizing different roles for people in sport because we don't get Michelle Wees or we don't get uh, Sidney Crosby's or, or Wayne Gretzky's without thousands of other people to help them in their development. And the more that we get people disengaging from the sport, from a recreational or a near elite uh, performance perspective, it undermines the ability for us to develop these superstars uh, because they're their groups that they're competing against are being watered down or being decreased. Oh boy, oh boy. This might be one of the most important parts of this conversation today. What a, what a great, what a great conversation that is pro professional sports and elite sports. It isn't for everybody. Dr. Baker, you're so right. It is. You know what I've often said, and you know, I've been lucky enough to work with some of those people. Everybody who's there, regardless of the sport makes it to the top, whether we're talking representing your country at the Olympics or a professional team, or, you know, even getting a, a major college scholarship. That's really, really special. And, you know, I've often told my daughters and my, my wife, look, these people are special people, not, not because of, the person they are, but because what they've been able to accomplish. And and just for me personally, I can tell you um, one of the reasons I really truly respect elite athletes is their ability and their tenacity just to see it through. Like for me as a young kid, and I'm still like this to this very day and you know, just, it's just the way I'm wired, I suppose. But you know, um, I've, I've changed with the seasons and, you know, growing up in a four season country, maybe that has something to do with it. That's kind of an interesting thought. But at the end of a hockey season, I couldn't wait for spring for spring sports. And, you know, when baseball came around, um, 
I couldn't wait for baseball to be over to get to football and, you know, this next season. And, and though it served me well in, in, in um, my profession, I've got a really good understanding of a lot of different sports. Uh, but it's one of the reasons I really do respect those elite athletes. They're, they're pretty special, not just in their tenacity to see it through, but they've also got some, you know, interesting character traits as well that you might attribute to professional athletes, wh- whether it's selfishness or self-serving or or whether it's you know um their ability to focus and stay dedicated whatever it might be um that's an interesting really interesting conversation yeah and i think that's that's one of the things that makes it really hard for the average person to wrap their head around um the elite performer is the the type of personality and the type of character that they have that allows them to sacrifice um, you know, going out with friends when they're in their teenage years or obsessively focused on on practicing this one technique until it's absolutely perfect that most of us would would give up halfway through that process because we're just not wired the same way. And so, you know, that that not everybody is wired that way for for the people who are, though, sport and elite sport in particular is a perfect match for um, for them and, and their and their personality. And so they get a high degree of satisfaction from that. The average person wouldn't. And so not only should um, we try to do a better job of understanding those characteristics of elite performers, we should also get rid of the idea that um, boy, wouldn't it be great to be an Olympian or wouldn't it be great to be, uh, uh, you know, a, a Stanley Cup champion? Well, it would be great for those five minutes that you're hosting that cup above your head. But then you have to go back to a lifestyle where every single moment of your day is designed around your training, your sleep, the way you interact with your kids, the the, the relationships you have with your family. Um, everything is designed around training. And I think most people have no idea what that lifestyle looks like. They only see that five minutes that they're holding the cup above their head. Well, that five minutes is based on a life, uh, a lifespan of sacrifice and, and giving up things that you enjoy and, you know, having that second glass of wine with your, with your meal that they can't do, they don't do. And so um, I think we need to understand that better because I think if we did, fewer people would aspire to that kind of, um, that kind of lifestyle because it is amazingly difficult. Yeah, it really is. We're talking with Dr. Joe Baker, sports science uh, uh, researcher from York University. It is a grind. It's grueling. It's tedious. Um, and behind the scenes, uh, there is more work being done than I think people understand. And that's that's a really interesting perspective. And then, you know, when we go to um, the professional sports and the games and, you know, the the the, the pressure there now to select talent and, you know, it goes back to our original conversation about how, you know, even pro teams are starting academies for seven-year-olds and young kids and they're looking at young kids playing in the school schoolyards to try to identify the next great talent out there. Um, we're, we're, we're literally changing the landscape by observing these young kids. And do you think that's going to be something that we, that we are going to seriously need to address here in the near future? Because, um, I, I feel a lot of pressure on young kids. And again, you, you mentioned or sort of referenced the idea that uh, it, it may be pushing more kids out of sport than, than causing them to stay in sport. 
Yeah, I think so. The The problem is we don't have the numbers. And uh, I'm sure if we did, we'd be able to make a pretty good evidence-based um, uh, conclusion about uh, why this is a bad idea. Um, what I would love to see is somebody take an academy system and say, um, you know, based on everything we know about the value of uh, diverse um, engagement in sport during during youth years, we're going to design a program to make you better hockey players. And, and the summer uh, approach to that program is for you to play soccer or for you to play uh, basketball. And the reason we do that is because these are the skills that we know relate to hockey that you get from playing those other activities. And some of those things might be soft skills like enjoyment or perseverance or goal setting or, or whatever it is. Other ones might be more clear and objective, like, we're going to put you into basketball because basketball is a invasion sport where you have to go into another team's area and score points, which is similar to hockey. And so there's some pattern recognition and some decision-making stuff that, that will transfer. And so um, there, there is a way to design a better approach to sport uh, delivery. If we wanted to move away from this over overly specialized approach, it would just take a bit of creativity. It would take, a lot more resource sharing on the part of sports because right now it's very siloed. Nobody wants to share their athletes with uh, with another sport because they feel they're at risk of losing them. Um, you, I think that's a very low risk because somebody who's going to be an amazing hockey player is not going to want to play basketball for the long term. They're going to be wanting to play hockey because they're their competency is going to be driven more by performance in hockey than it will be in basketball. And so I see this um, idea of of losing uh, people or uh, losing athletes to other sports uh, a, a pretty weak argument because that's not how we're wired. We're wired to actually find the activity that best suits our capabilities, best suits our talent, for lack of a better word. Uh, and if we gave people more opportunities, we would find people finding those activities uh, more than they do right now with this hyper-specialized environment that we have for youth sport. Oh, Dr. Baker, you are singing to the choir right now. I could tell you that, Mr. Singing to the choir. Yeah, right. People will gravitate to things they're good at. Listen, I am five foot 10 um, and I weigh like 200 pounds. I'm probably not going to be having a lot of success in the NBA, right? I mean, honestly, um, <laughs> my brother is pretty stealthy and he runs, runs marathons. I could tell you right now, I am not going to be a real capable marathon runner. Not that I can't enjoy running a marathon. I'm just not going to be competitive at it. So there's the physical side, but then there's also the mental side of that. And that's another side of that early sampling that I think is great because also, you know, you have, as you mentioned, I like those sort of that, that what you said about basketball as a, a, a summer alternative for hockey as an attacking sport, you know, getting in the other other teams uh, territory and trying to, to attack and, and score that way. That is a great way to look at that, but also the individual sports team sports and then the type of team sports. I, yeah. I worked with some elite squash players uh, here in Canada and, you know, I, I asked them why they chose um, um, uh, squash as their main sport, because I know that this one young uh, talent that we were working with who wound up to be highly ranked in the world uh, was also played hockey and he played baseball. And you know what he said when I asked him, he said, well, you know, I just didn't like my fate being in the hands of others. He said, I like to be in control of my own fate. Isn't that interesting? And he was only like 15 at the time. 
Yeah, and I think that's, again, recognizing that uh, people have personalities that are better suited to some sports over others. This idea that um, there's going to be a common personality that fits across all sports just doesn't make sense. Um, I'm, I know I'm the same way. I, I never really gravitated towards team sports. It was always individual sports for me. My wife is the absolute opposite. It was team sports all the way for her. And so um, it's, again, we need to get rid of this cookie cutter approach, assuming that there's a one size fits all approach to sport. It isn't, it's highly specific to the type of sport. And, and again, if we we could understand what sports share certain qualities, then we could design better youth engagement models uh, to help develop those qualities if we knew what the long-term goal was. Right. Dr. Baker, um, it's such a fabulous conversation. Before I let you go here, though, uh, we could keep you for hours, but but we're going to be um, bothering you quite often over this uh, 2021 campaign as talent is one of our main themes um, one of the things, maybe last notes, I'd like just to, to touch base with you with is, you know, in terms of cracking the code of talent, one of the things that we've seen is looking back on current great performers. Now, this kind of goes back to the conversation we have about sport evolving. And I really, really appreciate what you said that, you know, uh, creating a Serena Williams now, you might not have a lot of success based on how much the game has changed. Now, Serena has had the longevity inside of the game to adapt and, and and make adjustments for the way the game is changing. But but I like what you said about, you know, creating a Serena Williams in today's landscape. You might not have a lot of success. And, and you know, one of the things that people are uh, seemingly trying to do is look back at the careers of great performers and break down and decipher what made them great. And that might be a futile uh, uh, task based on what we're talking about here. Well, and and uh, that's a key point, right? Like if the majority of the evidence that we have for uh, what works in athlete development is from athletes who were um, like who were successful youth players from 20, 30, maybe even 40 years ago. And so that evidence will tell us what worked 40 years ago. It won't tell us what worked now because the sports system has changed and anybody who developed in the system um, in the 70s, 80s, 90s can see how fundamentally it's changed. It's it's a fund, it's a completely different system now. Uh, and so we need to figure out what the similarities are and then what lessons we can take from that um, past experiences that are going to be relevant to the current system. Assuming that they're all the same is just uh, is just not true. We can learn some things, but other things we're going to have to learn from the from the ground up because it's a completely different environment. Oh boy, oh boy, so many things to think about. And again, that's why we're sort of dedicating uh, 2021 to the theme of talent and talent development to dig down deep and maybe to to get closer to some of the answers that we discussed today. But I can't think of a better discussion, Doctor Baker, to kick off um, our our campaign here this year on talent, talent development, so many things to consider. Listen, I really appreciate all the work you and your, your good people there at the university are doing. You guys have really, really helped steer the ship when it comes to talent globally, I might add. And, and I look forward to continuing this conversation with you and some of your colleagues there as the year progresses, Dr. Baker. Thanks so much for, for all your thoughts and insights today. Yeah, it was a great, uh, as always a great uh, conversation. So uh, yeah, thanks for the chat, Jeff. All right, there you go, everybody. Episode number one of the Crush Performance 2021 look into talent, talent development, and talent ID. 
And nobody better to kick it off than a crush favorite, Dr. Joe Baker from York University. A fantastic conversation, and I think that really does set the tone for the year. This conversation sets us up with the ammo we need to attack our understanding of talent, talent development, and talent ideas we head into this year. It's one of our top two themes, the crush brain game. And talent, talent ID are going to be two of our top themes for this year. We're going to have all the other great crush stuff for sure. Next week, we're going to be talking sleep, sleep science, and what you need to get a better sleep. A mattress, a pillow, um, the new technology that's out there. It's going to be a fantastic conversation. And as you all know, if you listen to the show, sleep is our number one priority in terms of setting you up for top performance. So we're going to get back into that right away as we head into 2021, because we need that taken care of. Just as if you were an athlete or an organization coming to us uh, and we're developing your performance plan, sleep was a top priority. Sleep of our employees is a top priority. Sleep of our players, our coaches, our administration are a top priority. If an organization is going to perform at its peak, everybody had better be at the highest level of readiness every single day. And when we break that down, to the individual pieces, our individual athletes, our coaches, our support staff, our administration, our GMs, our, our leadership. Everybody needs to be getting a good sleep. So uh, we're going to be talking about that along with some thoughts on the NFL. What a way to get into the playoffs here. We're going to be talking about that. And our two themes of talent and the brain game are constantly present in all of these conversations. They might not be the main focus of the conversation, but boy, oh boy, everything we talk about will fall under these umbrellas or is influenced in some way, shape, or form by how we go about talent, talent development, and how we're addressing the brain game in our own performance. What a great way to kick off 2021 here, a conversation with Crush Hall of Famer Jim Fannin last week and Dr. Joe Baker this week. So i got to thank Dr. Joe Baker. Hey, I want to thank you guys for tuning in. Get us again, your questions, comments, smart remarks, your questions. If you have a topic you'd like us to investigate, let us know. We've dedicated segments and entire episodes to your ideas because they're just that important. And we answer every single message we get, so do write to us. All right, okay, coming up next week again, we'll be talking sleep, sleep science with Dr. Charles Samuels from the Center for Sleep. And we're going to look at one of the innovative online mattress companies. And we'll talk about new cutting edge technology and what you need to know about getting the right mattress. Because ladies and gentlemen, sleep is a number one top priority in your performance. Until then, everybody, get out there, stay safe, have some fun, but most of all, get better. And we'll talk to you next week right here on Crush Performance. Goodbye now. Don't forget to ride. This is a Sitting Ringside with David Penzer Quick Fix on Radio Influence. This week on City Ringside, as we head into this Saturday night's Hard to Kill pay-per-view from Impact Wrestling, we will talk to the man who is manipulating it all. I'm talking about the Executive Vice President of Impact Wrestling and the Invisible Hand. What a week he's had. Don Callis will be our guest, going to talk about... Where things go from here now that it seems like the Young Bucks are on board and it looks like there's a Bullet Club reunion. We're going to talk about where he stands with Tony Khan and if he's afraid that Tony will pull the plug at some point of this ultimate plan that they have. Also, we're going to talk to him about Impact Wrestling. Have him put on his executive vice president hat and talk about what he saw, the challenges of coming in when he did. 
and uh, working with Scott Demore and the talent uh, to build back this company and also talk a little bit about his time away from the business and if he might end up with this new band back in New Japan Pro Wrestling. All that and so much more as we head in to Hard to Kill. Don Callis, this week, a unique interview, a unique man on Sitting Ringside. Sitting Ringside with David Penzer can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Podcasts, and RadioInfluence.com.